Good morning. So I know everybody's like, Jen's back, but for those of you who started attending Forefront in the last three months, I'm the associate pastor. <laughs> and I'm back because I was gone from maternity leave for the last three months. So um, for those of you who are new faces that I haven't met before, I really look forward to talking to you after service. Come say hello. Um, so this morning, if you're like me uh, and you're going to be bothered by these two chairs, well, Diana's going to be joining me in just a few moments, but I am going to set us up just a little bit before she does, okay? <laughs> this is so distracting because my little baby is watching me from right there. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. So, um, so here we are in the second week of Lent, right? And Lent is this time, traditionally, it's the 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday where we tend to repent and sit in self-denial and reflection as we get ready to walk with Jesus to the cross, okay? And it's this time when we ask ourselves questions about why we do the things we do and where God is in our choices. So maybe you guys have heard of somebody giving something up for Lent, right? Has anybody decided to give something up for Lent this year? Raise your hands. Does, is anyone willing to share what it is that they gave up? Go ahead, what is it? Okay, sure, sure. That's fair. I get it. Okay. Does anybody else want to say what they give up? Yeah. Nice. Good. Cool. Facebook. Guys, this is great. These are all my examples in just a minute. Way to go. I didn't plan that. <laughs> so last week, though, Ben Grace said something that I really liked about all this. He said that, you know, oftentimes we give up something during Lent in an effort of self-control or self-denial, right? But maybe that's not the the spirit of what we're really seeking, maybe we give something up so that we have more space in our lives for love and light and grace, right? And I thought that really resonated with me because think about it, you know, if you give up something like social media, what is it that you're actually saying yes to? You're saying yes to being more present with friends and family, relationships, hobbies, whatever it is, rather than checking out and scrolling through Facebook, you know? Um, or if you're giving up something like candy or alcohol or whatever it might be, soda, right? What you're really saying yes to is better health, better focus, and being more aware of yourself and your relationships. So for me, uh, I really liked that idea, and Ben also referred me to a blog called asacredjourney.net that he's been following for a while, and the author on there wrote this post this week that I liked. She said, Lent means spring. Did you know that? So often, Lent is associated with death and with fasting, but that's not the whole story. It's about the stripping of the false self in order to call forth the true self, the Imago Dei, or the image of God in you. It's about surrendering the things that don't give life in order to allow the things that do to flourish. It's about clearing away the brush of winter and making space in our lives so we can tend to the new growth that comes with spring. Lent is about omission and waiting, yes, but it's also about taking action, about drawing close to God so that we may be refined, refreshed, and made new, just as Jesus was in the desert. So I'm feeling challenged by that idea right now, this idea of changing seasons, letting some things go so that other things might grow, right? You know, I have a new baby at home. My mind is challenged by all kinds of different priorities and shifting needs in my life. And yet, there's so much hope about it. There's so much space for new things and new experiences. And I like that, to think of Lent that way instead. Because here we are, we're sitting in this book like Ecclesiastes, which can be kind of dark and depressing. You know, we're all going to die. Mm, great. But like Proverbs and like Job, which are considered books of wisdom, I think wisdom literature strives to teach us how to apply God's ways and God's wisdom for our lives in the ways in which we interact with ordinary things, from cultural and religious institutions to the way that we respond to other human beings, even the way we interact with 
the natural world, the physical world, like our bodies and how we respond to nature. So what I think we need to remember, though, about wisdom literature in the Bible is that, like Proverbs 1-7 teaches us, it says, the roots of wisdom are in the fear of the Lord. In other words, all wisdom stems from the understanding that God is our creator, and so therefore, in everything we do, we have to deal with God. Jonathan talked last week about the Hebrew word havel, which he said means vapor, and I think different translations of the Bible interpret that word differently. Some said vapor, breath, smoke, and that idea is presented over and over again in Ecclesiastes, that life is vapor, right? But I think it's less, you know, I think it's less that it's saying that it's meaningless and more that it's saying it's a fleeting thing, a temporary thing. And we see that same reminder echoed throughout Scripture. So like in Psalm 144.4, we have... Uh, man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. And in the New Testament, in James 4, the author reminds us that our lives are but a vapor again, a puff of smoke that appears for but a short time and then vanishes. So if wisdom is rooted in the understanding that everything comes from our creator and that tomorrow is never promised, then I think as we're reading this book and we go through the ebb and flow of the poetry of Ecclesiastes, we have to kind of ride the wave of the positive and the negative observations that the author makes, all pushing us towards this main idea at the end in chapter 12, verse 13, where he says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. In other words, because life is but a vapor, because everything under the sun is a fleeting thing, then the only worthwhile part of all of it is to love and serve our everlasting God, our creator. And if we could truly remember that in everything that we do, how would it change the choices that we make on a daily basis? So for example, let's take today's passage, right? Jonathan just read it for us. Uh, chapter 9, verses 4 to 10, starts off saying, Still, anyone selected out for life has hope, for as they say, a living dog is better than a dead lion. The living at least know something, even if it's only that they're going to die. But the dead know nothing and get nothing. They're a minus that no one remembers. Their loves, their hates, yes, even their dreams are long gone. There's not a trace of them left in the affairs of this earth. So what's it saying? Basically, we're all going to die, right? Better to be alive than it is to be dead, so... Going on with that then, well, why not then seize life, right? And I, we underline this next verse because we're going to focus in on it. But eat bread with gusto, drink wine with a robust heart. Oh, yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. So dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors and scarves. I totally didn't mean to wear a scarf today, but it works. Relish life with the spouse you love each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. So make the most of each one. Whatever turns up, grab it, do it, and heartily. This is your last and only chance at it. For there's neither work to do nor thoughts to think in the company of the dead where you are most certainly headed. And this is the message translation of the scripture, by the way. I think what's being offered here are some wise thoughts on, on intentional living, okay? But still, we got to keep it in context because we could easily take something like verse 7 and, and take it as a blessing on self-indulgence, especially when it comes to food. But if we keep it in context, I think we see that we're being called to be more mindful and have a sense of celebration about the foods that we eat and the choices that we make with our bodies. You know, Jesus himself addresses this issue of limits if we keep this in the whole of Scripture. In Luke 12, he talks about the parable of the rich man, or it's sometimes called the parable of the greedy farmer, which teaches us that, yes, we should enjoy our bounty and the blessings that we get from God, but not to the extent that we go overboard or we become hoarders or greedy and keep things from other people, right? Because wise living is anchored in understanding that God is our creator all good things flow from God, and that tomorrow is never promised. We are not in control of our fate. 
So here at Forefront, we talk a lot about just and generous living, and I think ultimately what we also are talking about is wise living and living in God's ways. Um, so I think this morning, we could have a lot of different arguments about what that looks like specifically when it comes to food, because for each one of us, wise living might look a little bit different or a lot different from the person sitting next to you. So I wanted to have a little bit of a midrash of sorts. You know, this scripture goes into a lot of things, not just food, but the clothes we wear, the way we love our spouses, the way we work, all of that. But this morning, I just want to focus in on the choices that we make around food and what it means to live wisely in those decisions. So this is where I want to invite Diana up to join us. You guys can give it, yeah, give her a round of applause. All right, so... Like we said, Diana's been a part of our community for 12 years. She met her husband through Forefront, right? She's having her second child. Um, she's also a registered dietitian and a family health expert, and she recently launched, launched her own business called The Baby Steps Dietitian, where she is focusing on supporting pregnant women and postpartum mothers and feeding anyone who's trying to feed a young family. So naturally, we've been talking lately, and we started thinking about um, some of these ideas, uh, some of the good things that she shared with us in community over the last few years that I wanted her to share with all of you guys today. So let's get started by just simply, will you tell us what is a registered dietitian, and then why have you decided to make this your life's work? Oh yeah, and we need the microphone, sorry. <laughs> yep. That's my website. That's my website. Di DianaKRice.com. <laughs> Um, yeah, a registered dietitian is a credentialed nutritionist. It means that I went back to school um, for three years to get a science degree in nutrition and work under other registered dietitians to learn the trade uh, and become an expert in my field. Uh, it was a career change for me. Um, you know, in my late 20s, um, right around the time that I got married, um, I realized, you know, I was no longer just responsible for feeding myself, but uh, at the time I was feeding, mo making most of my spouse's meals as well, mm -hmm. and um, being responsible for someone else's health in that way, and also um, even just having someone to to share my meals with at the end of the day. You know, I used to just eat hummus and crackers for dinner. And just call it, and that's what being single is, right? You're like going out and popcorn, <laughs> you know, that's what I have. liquid dinner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, but we were had the opportunity to share more meals together, and I just started getting more and more interested in uh, cooking and um, making sure that the meals that we were enjoying on a regular basis were nutritious and realized that this was really my passion um, and wanting to help other people do the same. So that's what led me to go back to school and, and is now the foundation of my private practice. Nice. So that's a great place for us to start because ultimately what you're saying is your values drove you into considering food in this way and working with it for a living for your family and all that. And I think, uh, you know, Jonathan mentioned earlier that the reason we embrace um, meals, especially within our community, and why we feel like that's so important is because Jesus clearly, he shared meals with people from all spectrums of life, all ends of life, right? And sometimes that was a really radical thing that he did. And it's no coincidence that he chose the Last Supper um, as this really significant time to say goodbye to his disciples, to his very best friends. And um, I think this is something that, especially in this political climate that we're in right now, people are starting to realize even more and more that when you sit down to the table, you are sharing values with others. And I know we were talking about, Diana shared with me a New York Times article. We talked a lot about this back at the holidays within our community. There were people who decided not to go home for Thanksgiving this year because they couldn't handle the idea of sitting at a table with someone who voted opposite of them. Um, and I know that you had some great thoughts on this. Do you want to share some of that? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a tough season to be in. I think we all recognize that. Um, and 
you know, the timing of the election being right before Thanksgiving, this was a big deal to a lot of people. And, um, you know, just thinking about it more and more and reading that, that Times article, but really it was just something that I was hearing from people in, in this community um, is, you know, the, the, the judgment that they thought they were going to feel or, or somehow the election brought to a head, you know, um, if you check that box on the ballot card, you were expressing your values and th your values are opposite of my value and I can't sit across the table uh, from you because of that. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about uh, how this works in my family. In my family, my extended family, we do have people on completely polar opposite um, sides of the political spectrum, um, but very, I, I think I'm very lucky and fortunate that we didn't experience that hostility and, and you know, changing plans and saying we weren't going to come together. And I was just trying to think about why that was, and I, I realized that you know, it was because we had another value um, that far, you know, outweighed our political views, and it was, you know, it's just that we loved each other and we, you know, we respected each other. And, you know, that's what we put first and foremost. And, um, you know, most of the time we just didn't even talk about politics. But when we did, we were coming at it from a place of love and respect and community. And so, you know, I think that there's something about, it's not just, you know, sitting and having a conversation with someone, there's something about sitting at a table and having a meal. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is that we value something enough to come together over this shared topic. You know, the same thing happened with Christ when he would um, eat with people he wasn't supposed to. Well, he's saying, I, I don't care. <laughs> There's something that, that I value even more. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's just something I encourage us all to think about uh, and pray about if we find ourselves in those situations. Like, how can we overcome that with love and grace? Well, and now on the flip side, I've been reading articles about what people are doing to bring people together around a table in this political climate, again. Uh, in Sunset Park, there's a community of neighbors who are having potlucks with different cultural dishes from their own background, getting together with their different neighbors and inviting the refugees and the immigrants from their community to come sit with them and bringing in lawyers and people who can help them to understand what their rights are and to feel safe there within their neighborhood, which I thought was really, like, that's some kingdom work right there. Um, and I know it's, it's resistance work, but also, like, what a great act of, of building the kingdom of God. God, because as you were saying, it's showing that this common humanity, that God's love extends to all people. And so I was challenged by that to think about how we could, you know, my, my family loves to feed people. How can we feed people that I've never thought of before and use our table and our home to care for people that I, that I hadn't thought about caring for before in that way? So anyway, um, going back now to verse 7, uh, let's take this in a different direction. We said, I said earlier that this could also maybe be taken as a blessing on self-indulgence. But for me, and this is probably because I'm a woman, when I first read that verse, went back to it, I thought that it's kind of a blessing to not feel guilt or shame in the foods that you eat. And I know that the things that we put into our bodies can be a really complex issue, and I know that this is something that you're really passionate about. So will you speak about that? Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a foundation of my practice. Um, and for me, it's so important um, because it really t ties in with the Christian value of where do we get our worth? Like We know, we read in the text that our worth comes from God alone, but it is, in our culture, uh, very difficult for us to practice that. Um, you know, we, we get this feeling of, um, you know, we, we ate something bad, or, you know, we look at our bodies and we feel gross, and, you know, especially women. And if you've never experienced this, Awesome. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we know that nothing that we consume makes us clean or unclean. We know that nothing about the shape of our bodies has anything to do with our worth in the eyes of God, and nor should it uh, have anything to do with the wor our worth in the eyes of anyone else, right? Um, so when I read that passage, 
you know, I, I read as you're saying, you know, don't, don't feel shame over the foods that you're eating. Anything that you eat, whether it is an indulgent food, um, you know, something that is not necessarily considered healthy or really healthy food, you know, just eat it with gusto. And, and that's why um, I also don't think that it's a, a blessing on self-indulgence because there are going to be different occasions when it's uh, appropriate to, to eat something quote-unquote unhealthy um, and enjoy it, but also to enjoy the foods that are health-promoting, the nutritious food, your fruits and vegetables and all the things that nutritionists like me are telling you to eat, um, to, to delight in that and eat that with gusto as well uh, because it is helping you build this best life that God wants for you. So really, I think in the individual sense, what we're asking you know, as the season of Lent is, how does your diet reflect your values, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's a lot to unpack here. You know, like I was saying, you could, um, any given food, uh, you could be eating for different reasons. And so I encourage us to um, just be a little bit more mindful, think about why we're eating uh, a certain food for a certain occasion. An example I like, I like to use is, um, let's say it's uh, Sunday afternoon and you're taking your family out for ice cream or you know, you're going out to brunch with your friends and you see something really amazing on the menu. Um, I encourage you to enjoy that food and, and, and don't uh, feel guilt or shame over it and eat it with gusto. Um, but at the same time, that exact same food, whether it's you know the cake on a brunch menu or uh, a pint of ice cream in your freezer, uh, if you're coming home on a weeknight and you had a really long day and you're totally stressed out and you just want to bury yourself in that food, mm. like, what is the intention behind why you're eating it? Are you eating mm. it basically in celebration or is it an expression of something else? And in that case, uh, I encourage you to, it could be the exact same food in different occasions, um, but what is the re reason that you're eating it? And if it is something that is considered more um, of an indulgent food, uh, you know, save those for the occasions where you're eating them in celebration. Um, you know, another thing that I think is important to think about here is, um, you know, in, as a nutritionist, I do want people to be eating um, nutritious foods on a regular basis. And, and what is the reason for that? Why, why aren't we eating cake and ice cream, you know, Day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and I, I think it's... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let me tell you, Jen. <laughs> uh, you know, it's because we, we do know that certain foods are more health-promoting than others. And I think that when the is the foundation of our diet, um, we, can, we can delight in enjoying those foods because we know that they are setting us up to live our best life, the life that God wants us to... Um, to be to be able-bodied and you know physically able to do his work, um, whether that's enjoying you know chasing our kids around the park, or um, or being ready to be, when we're called to serve. Uh, an example that I think about really often in this church community was um, a few years ago for Hurricane Sandy. I mean, we rallied like right, we were we were so excited to serve in that case. And in a lot of cases, that service involved physical labor, uh, involved um, climbing up. You know, 20 flights of stairs in buildings that had lost power to distribute supplies or hauling, uh, you know, soaking wet furniture out of church basements. And, you know, I want us to be ready to do those things when we are called. You know, of course, you know, you can follow the best diet in the world and it doesn't guarantee you perfect health. Mm -hmm. um, but we do know that, you know, more or less, this is the, the uh, approach to take and physical activity is part of that as well. Yeah, so some of these questions that come up from reading a book like Ecclesiastes and um, just asking yourself questions about what it looks like to to participate in meaningful things in life, right? In this, this fleeting life, right? What it looks like to have a, f a flourishing life. I think these are things that ultimately get answered through the life and person of Jesus, um, who comes and says, I've come not only so that we can have life, but 
life to the fullest, right? And yet, for us, kind of having that conversation and trying to figure out what that looks like for each one of us is something very different. And this is where I think the practice of something like giving something up for Lent can be a really great thing because it allows you that space to just have those conversations of what, what it looks like for me to have a flourishing life. So one of the things that's a, a pretty strong tradition for Lent uh, for the Roman Catholics is to give up meat on Fridays, which is interesting because it's like a partial fast. And I know that I wanted you to share about your views on meat, um, not because we're trying to say that this is what you should do or you have to do, but because I'm really interested in the way in which Diana has kind of come to discover her values around meat. Will you share a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. And just, just making it clear, this is just one example of, of if, you, if you're hearing this conversation and thinking about you know, making some changes to your diet, um, because meat is so strongly tied with the Lenten season, you know, it's one place to start. Um, you know, uh, I actually just left an organization um, that where I worked for three years where we worked on helping people reduce their meat consumption. So I know quite a lot about this. <laughs> and I know um, I, I'm not a vegetarian. I, I eat meat actually most days of the week. Um, but for, for me in my personal life, what I do is I... Uh, eat meat when I am having dinner with my spouse or uh, a gathering you know, at a restaurant with friends and family. Um, and then for the meals that are just more run-of-the-mill that I'm having breakfast and lunch, I tend to choose vegetarian foods. Um, and you know, for me, that's as a, from a nutrition perspective, um, we eat far more meat <laughs> than we are, are meant to, basically. Um, you know, the, there's nothing wrong with eating meat in moderation, um, but from a scientific perspective, we know that eating a breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, not only gives you some of the more unhealthy nutrients, but displaces in your diet um, things like vegetables, <laughs> whole grains, legumes that um, that you probably should be eating more of to um, to, to follow a healthy diet. Um, and if, it, it reminds me of um, what Jonathan was talking about two weeks ago when he did the story of the prodigal son. And, you know, when the son comes home and the father says, slaughter the fattened calf, that's a big deal um, in, in that culture at the time. That might have only happened one or two times a year. And those are the occasions on which they got to have beef. And uh, as compared to, you know, these days, we could slaughter a fattened cow breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, you know, we don't, th we don't think twice about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think another really interesting example is um, my brother's approach. He has spent uh, a lot of time living in cultures abroad, um, everywhere from Senegal to Cambodia, just very different cultures, but cultures that do not have as much as us. And he realized this common thread in all of the, the places that he's lived is that they eat meat as well, but they eat it in celebration, you know, for, for someone's you know, someone's going away party or something like that. And so when he returned to the U.S. and he kind of um, started taking more notice of the excess in which we all, uh, most of us eat meat, mm -hmm. he decided um, not to become a vegetarian, but to do that same um, enjoy meat uh, in celebration. So he, he in his day-to-day -day life, is mostly vegetarian. And then Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, when, you know, my mom makes a, a roast or a turkey in the middle of the table, like, he, he definitely eats it and enjoys it, um, but he, he reserves it for those occasions. So I'm not telling you to take either my approach or my brother's approach, but, you know, because it is Lent and um, we could, it's, this is somewhere we could start to, to think about. Yeah, that's great. And I like, you bring up the idea or the topic of family traditions and celebrations with the family. Um, we talk a little bit more, you had some ideas around that as well, creating these traditions, even if it's like Tuesday night, making a celebration out of it. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting, especially in the American culture um, where, you know, we're a melting pot. We don't necessarily have all these um, deep-rooted traditions. And so I encourage us in this time of Lent to 
make those, if we don't have them already, make those traditions, whether it's getting together with your small group for a regular meal, or you know, maybe you and your spouse don't often have dinner together, maybe trying to carve out some time to make that uh, more, a more regular occurrence, mm -hmm. or family dinners, or you know, just you know, inviting people over from your building, from your neighborhood. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be anything in particular. It could be like, okay, it's Tuesday. Oh, okay, Taco Tuesday. You know, um, <laughs> and everybody in my building is always invited to my house for Taco Tuesday or something like that. Um, just you know, create that tradition because of the value that meal that we know that meals have because of the way that people come together over meals and mm -hmm. you know someone might just say free tacos okay cool but like what's going to come out of that yeah. you know that when you're doing that on a regular basis um, th that's what we're really getting at yeah when I got married my husband and I decided that we were going to celebrate his Irish heritage um, so like St. Patrick's Day is a time when we cook a real Irish meal not just corned beef and cabbage um, so I'm excited about that this year because that's something that we've decided to make part of our family tradition, basically. Um, and this is actually a great segue for us as we kind of move into this time of communion because community, or communion is also a family tradition for us here at Forefront. It's a, a Christian tradition that we participate in with people all over the world this morning when we take communion. So I want to invite the band to come back down and to help us prepare. I want to say thank you to Diana for Thanks sharing for just a little bit of everything we could have talked about this morning. Uh, and Diana's available that if you wanted to have conversations about some of the things that you're wrestling with around food, this is one of the ways in which she serves our community. Um, talk to her. You can, yeah, she's, <laughs> she's building a business, too, so she'd love to like, uh, collaborate and, and serve. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And so with that, with communion, um, this morning as we come up and we participate together, I do want to invite you guys to keep in mind that we are sharing values when we come to the table this morning. And so for us here at Forefront, we choose to represent communion with, with matzah crackers and grape juice, right? But I think it's less about the ingredients that we use and more about the values that are placed